with Deadpool, Deadpool sort of has those hints and has those scenes where it does have characters from the X-Men movies. So that's sort of why it's this contained just X-Men, not including it in a broader Marvel brand. That's a good point. I think too, with Fox at the helm, it seemed like all these were a little edgier than your typical, not all, but mostly a little bit different. They just had a different vibe. It felt like they were unfettered by any constraints of, I mean, certainly they they had the constraints of a PG-13 rating for most of these. Let's talk about Deadpool. Deadpool, I think, you know, 20th Century Fox, they were known for putting out edgy movies like Fight Club. Uh, that was a movie that was, I probably would never even be released today. Uh, but, and, and to go out on a limb with Deadpool, that could have gone either way. That could have been disastrous, but what a knockout of a movie, Deadpool. That movie alone earned $783 million. That's an R-rated superhero uh, comedy. <laughs> I don't know how to describe It's almost indescribable. Ryan Reynolds I mean, was- that movie doesn't work without him. I don't think you can cast anyone else as Deadpool. And I think that really is where the magic is. Hey guys, Paul DeGarabedian here to tell you about a very special episode of my Many Screens Big Picture podcast. This episode has to be broken into two parts. Why? Because Sarah Witten, my great guest from CNBC, and I, we will be breaking down the top 10 movie franchises of all time. But we have to break it into two parts. There's just too much here to go over. So check out part one, where you'll learn a lot about those top movie franchises. All right, I'm Paul DeGarabedian, Senior Media Analyst for Comscore. Here with my many screens, big picture podcast, and a returning champion, Sarah Witten, entertainment journalist for CNBC, is back. We're here to talk about the top 10 movie franchises of all time. And we're talking about by box office, not your subjective view. What are the best franchises? We could have a whole hour on that, right, Sarah? Oh, we definitely could. But we're going to be talking about a, a story that actually Sarah has written uh, related to the top movie franchises. So let's get right into it. We're going to we're going to count backward from 10 cuz Sarah nobody knows which film or franchise is number 1. Do they? Oh no, I don't think anybody will be able to get. No, nobody can figure that out, right? <laughs> yeah, no, there's there's no way they're going to figure it out. I mean, if you if you have been paying attention to the box office. Big mystery and that's why we're counting back from 10 to 1. So, number 10 on the list with a mere, how many films? Six? Yeah, only six. Six films. The Jurassic Park franchise comes in, and we're going by worldwide box office for you people keeping score at home. And that franchise earned a lot of money to the tune of almost $5 billion billion dollars at the box office. All right, Dr. Evil. That franchise not, is not on this list. Oh, the Austin Powers franchise. That actually made quite a bit of money. I mean, if it we did, had yeah. for inflation, uh, it might be in the billions of dollars. But-, <laughs> but I think you make a good point. We really should point out that these are not adjusted for inflation. So this includes, you know, movies from the 90s, but not adjusted. So it's just the flat 
amount they made at the box office at that time. Right. And that's a good distinction because otherwise Gone with the Wind would be the number one movie franchise of all time all by itself. Oh, yeah. Yeah. One movie. One movie. <laughs> no Seven Dwarves would be up there. I mean, we've done that. We we had a fun a fun time actually adjusting them for inflation, but it makes things so complicated. So we just don't. Well, and it becomes even more problematic if you're trying to adjust a worldwide number because you have you really can't do it because you'd have to go by territory, go into the history of each territory or region or country, figure out the average ticket price, and then you'd have to convert that somehow. I mean, it's just way too much math. It's it's a lot of math. Someone would have to have a lot of patience, a lot of time and a lot of access. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. So Jurassic Park, I mean, I remember the first film, uh, June 11, 1993, when that movie came out. And remember uh, that opening weekend in North America of $50 million was unprecedented. That was just a huge number. I remember I had just started in the business because I started in March of that year when I was just a young pup. And that movie just took off like a rocket and people just loved it. What do you think about this franchise? I mean, it's still going. They they brought it back in, in 2015 with Jurassic World. Well, I mean, speaking of young pups, I was young to the business of life at that point. So <laughs> uh, I didn't see Jurassic Park until I was probably like 10 or 11. And so that would have been 10 years after it came out. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, okay, I was 91. So eight years after it came out. So I, I mean, I remember seeing it as a kid and, you know, falling in love with it. And, and then when they were like, we're going to, we're going to, do a continuation of it. It's like, okay, great, let's do it. The series itself is just so iconic and it was so well done at the beginning that it made perfect sense that obviously Universal was going to reboot it, uh, add to the story, bring in new actors, bring in some of the old actors, um, and really just expand on it. Because, I mean, the thing with franchises is that they are from, or they're born from these very unique and like, rich universes and that's what jurassic park is i mean yeah they redid the park <laughs> you know <laughs> and ooh, the dinosaurs escaped again but it's such a fun concept that i think it, it works and now they've kind of brought it to this bigger scale where the dinosaurs have now escaped and they're out in the real world not just in the park itself and i thought it was interesting i remember when jurassic park 3 was skipping over lost world jurassic park 2 in 07, because I remember that uh, was released in uh, mid-July of 2001. And Jurassic Park 3, I think the backstory was it was a much longer movie. And I remember that they they shortened it down. I actually really enjoyed it. It was like a lean and mean Jurassic Park movie. And I think they cut out a whole subplot or something like that. And that just shows how, you know, Spielberg and team really were kind of malleable. They were like, oh, this isn't working And I honestly don't know if they had test screenings or whatever, if they just looked at it and changed it. But that's kind of a much underrated movie. But I think the reason we have a Jurassic Park franchise is because generally, and I would say this is with all of these pretty much, there has to be a movie that breaks out so huge, especially the first one, that there's no denying that they're going to make another. And the first one made, what was it, nine over $900 million worldwide. And that's for 1993. Like, that's very good for that time. It's a huge number, and that's globally, the domestic, over $400 million. I believe there were some reissues uh, with Jurassic Park. I 
think, but still no denying the power of that. And then Jurassic World in 2015, Colin Trevorrow, great choice to direct an unlikely choice. And that movie I thought was very well received. It's really important to reboot, if you will, Jurassic Park with a really strong movie. And I thought 2015's Jurassic World was a good one. That one made over a billion dollars just internationally, uh, $1.7 billion almost at the worldwide box office. Yeah, well, I think they, they kind of stuck to the tried and true. Okay, we're going to build a new park. We're going to have crazy dinosaurs. The dinosaurs are going to escape. But I think they also kind of kept the mentality of like, there's that one character who kind of goes, didn't we do this already? So th- it's like they're the audience member kind of going, wait, didn't we do this already? And it's like, well, it's been 30 years and, you know, we need to make money. So <laughs> don't you think like that happened when they you know, really rebooted the Star Wars franchise, the rap, and we'll get to, well, <laughs> spoiler, spoiler alert, <laughs> Star Wars series or franchises is, is on our list. And I'll never forget all the pressure that was on that movie. The fact that uh, The Force Awakens in 2015, I think they went back to the tried and true formula. And I think when people revisit a franchise down the road, they kind of want to feel comfortable with it, even though people decry the lack of originality. It's like putting on an old pair of shoes, right? And that's kind of what happened with that Jurassic World, the first Jurassic World movie. Mm-hmm, for sure, for sure. But I mean, like you reboot Jurassic Park and you want to see what it's like to interact with giant dinosaurs. And it's the fun part is having them break out and seeing how we react to it. That's right. Science run amok with the dinosaurs, but great franchise. No questions has had a huge impact on film and on the box office. So are you ready for number nine? I am the DC extended universe coming in at number nine, $5.6 billion worldwide for the nine movies that are on our list. The latest, of course, being Wonder Woman 1984, the first being Man of Steel back in 2013. So that's a lot of money. How do you define, we've talked about this, Sarah, a universe versus a franchise? It's an existential (laughs) movie question. I think when we were coming together with these numbers, when we looked at the DC Extended Universe, we started questioning, okay, it's sort of fractured. So you've got these interesting movies like Joker that came out and it was like, okay, well, is Joker part of the contained universe of, you know, Man of Steel and Batman v Superman and Wonder Woman? And we went back and forth on it quite a bit until I found that article where um, Phillips came out and said, oh, yeah, it's not really part of it. If the director, if Todd Phillips says Joker is not part of the DCEU, that gives you a great, uh, you know, you can hang your hat on that pretty strongly. Yeah. So, I mean, if you did include there, you can add an extra billion to it. But by our mechanics, we went with what the director had kind of said there. Um, But in terms of what makes a franchise, what makes a universe, it's going to be something we talk about this whole time, because it's sort of this like existential question of how do you define the parameters of these films? And I guess when we look at the DC extended universe, it's sort of the films that are part of one timeline until the new movies come out and completely destroy that timeline because we know we're going to have a Batman movie that's not connected but is connected. So I, I think it's really just going to be an interesting, you know, seeing what they 
DC brings to the or Warner Brothers brings to the table here on how they define their franchise, because we're just going to be playing along until then. That's true. I, I think I know we were even looking at like the Blumhouse movies and it's not really I mean, that's a brand. And we've talked about that distinction as well. What's a brand What versus a franchise versus a universe? And with the Blumhouse movies, four and a half billion dollars, that includes Whiplash, Black Klansman, the horror movies as well. That's a little more nebulous. It's a little tougher to call that a franchise, but certainly as a brand, the Blumhouse brand is very powerful. And then beyond that, you have directors who are brands in and of themselves and all of that. But we're for this purpose, we're talking about the top 10 movie franchises of all time. We're going by box office. There has to be some level of definition to this. Can't just be, because we even talk about Pixar. Well, I mean, we talk about Pixar, you know, because there is that fan theory that all the movies are interconnected, but Pixar hasn't said they are. I mean, you could say that, you know, the Quentin Tarantino universe, are they all interconnected? You know, so it it gets a little wishy-washy. So I totally understand if there are folks out there that are like Quentin Tarantino's universe should be on this list. I'm sorry. It's not. Yeah. <laughs> I kind of went with a more traditional, you know, okay. It's a film series or a collective, you know, series of films that are all in the same fictional universe. And like, it is known they are part of the same fictional universe. Yeah. And I think there's an acknowledgement of that. And like you said, if Joker were to be included, let's say in the DCEU, but Todd Phillips says no. So I'm, I'm cool. That's a billion dollar worldwide gross that would move the DCEU up the chart. It would go from number nine to number five is what would happen. Sarah, what a difference, a mere billion dollars. <laughs> By the way, just full acknowledgement to Joker, that movie made a billion dollars. Like that's the most unlikely billion dollar. And so wonderful that that happened. What a cool movie. So you ready to move on to number eight? I am. Now we're using a different definition. Oftentimes, as far as what we call these even. So you might say, well, what's the Lord of the Rings franchise, right? But there's Hobbit. So how do you combine the two? What do you call them, Sarah? We call them Middle Earth. Middle Earth. There you go. (laughs) This is Middle Earth. Really a a, a huge amount of money there. Uh, $5.86 billion worldwide. And it's interesting, too, we haven't really talked too much about this, but when you generally look at the international, which is separated from North America, so international is not worldwide. There's a lot of uh, discussion about that. Like sometimes people use international worldwide interchangeably. They're not international. It's everything outside of North America. Generally on this list, the international is a much bigger part of the overall worldwide box office than is North America from whence all these movies pretty much were born or came from, uh, if you will. And so the domestic or North American cum for the six Middle Earth movies is $1.8 billion, uh, and the international $4 billion. $4 billion alone is a great number, but then you add the you know, domestic or North American, however, whatever term you want to use, and you get almost $6 billion. This is just incredible. Academy Award-winning movies, Peter Jackson – started this off in 01 with the Fellowship of the Ring. Yeah, I mean, there's no denying that this franchise is popular, that it did well at the box office. It's clear why they made the Hobbit films afterwards, and it's clear why they're trying to make a Lord of the Rings series. So, you know, how can you deny it? You can't. It's one of the most popular book series ever. And I would say, Sarah, we need to check this. If you combine the six movies, their running time, 
with all the extended footage, all the extras on all those Blu-rays or whatever, I'm guessing this might be the longest. We got to look at that. Marvel might have it beat just barely, just because it has 23 movies. But I think other than that, it might. Yeah, but we don't know if Marvel made this list, so we're going to have to wait and see. may not be fair to compare the two on running times, but yeah, Middle, Middle Earth, definitely uh, no small thing. This is a huge franchise for Warner Brothers, and I remember, too, the cool thing about, for years, it was you ha- always had, uh, let's say, a Harry Potter movie in November, and then a Lord of the Rings movie in December, and that went on for quite a while until they moved some of these movies to summer. I mean, I remember, you know, in high school, God, going back, uh, you know, that November, you know, date for Harry Potter was the date everybody put on their calendar because we were all going to go to the midnight showing. Oh, that's right. I remember that. That was a huge deal. You know, the midnight showings of that film. So that was number eight. Middle Earth, definitely a, a, a big franchise. Now we're moving on to a completely different time frame. These two, Middle Earth and the Fast and Furious franchise. Back to regular Earth now. Back to regular Earth, out of Middle Earth. Now uh, we're, we're hitting the, the road, if you will, where the rubber meets the road. 2001 was the first Fast and Furious movie. Paul Walker, Vin Diesel, a great team up. And then the cool cars and all the beautiful people and the, all the locations that became really a big part of the latter films where these became international movies, both in terms of their box office appeal and where they were filmed and shot and the locations that the characters inhabited. Absolutely. Well, I think what's so interesting about this series is that the first movie isn't the biggest movie. And for a lot of franchises, I mean, what you find is the first movie is the one that kicks it all off. And I think The Fast and Furious was a popular movie, but it really wasn't until, you know, the fourth film, Fast and Furious, where you saw an uptick in box office, particularly internationally, as you said. And then that just skyrocketed as we kept going. Yeah, that's that's really true, because I remember the first movie it opened with 40 million, which in 2001, June 22nd of 01. And it uh, just to go back a little bit, the, the Fast and Furious global franchise, and we're including Hobbs and Shaw because it's a Fast and Furious presents Hobbs and Shaw, five point almost six billion dollars in worldwide box office, but $4.2 billion of that international. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the, the especially Fa- uh, Furious 7 and The Fate of the Furious did insanely well internationally, both over a billion. Isn't that crazy? Like over a billion, I think it was in the 80 or 90% range that was international as a percentage of worldwide. I mean, think about that for a minute. So, for example, you bring up a great point. You're right with uh, Furious 7 and Fate of the Furious. Well, Fate of the Furious, which is Furious 8, because Furious 9 is coming out in 21, that movie earned $226 million in, in North America, great number, and over a billion internationally. These films are pure international catnip, People love these movies around the world and they really, and you're right. Usually it's the law of diminishing returns with a franchise where the first movie does really well. And then you see this slow, slow drop every movie. And this one just took off. And then remember they brought back Paul Walker and Vin Diesel together. There were a couple of movies there where, and Tokyo Drift, which is much beat up upon as, as a movie. Well, I think it's a fan favorite. Yeah. I kind of like that movie. I think it was, Well, I think because people really wanted to see Vin Diesel and Paul Walker really back together and they would tease that they would be back, but 
maybe there was some negotiations going on behind the scenes there, but really this, and then to have now, I mean, would you consider Hobbs and Shaw a spinoff? So therefore does it belong in the fast and furious franchise? I think it does. I think because it's interconnected in this, you know, like it, it, it feeds into the tissue of, you know, the franchise itself. I like that. I think it can stay on that list. I will defer to you, Sarah, because you know your stuff. <laughs> now, wait, are we on number six? I'm losing track here. We are, we are headed to number six. All right. X-Men franchise. Now, this is an interesting one because a lot of people would say coming before Spider-Man, the first Tobey Maguire Spider-Man movie, that the first X-Men movie, which was in mid-July of the year 2000, came before Spider-Man, the first Spider-Man movie, which came out uh, two years later in yeah, two. two. 2002. I almost said 2002, and I was like, that's not how you say that. <laughs> well, there's all these numbers floating around. Six, so many numbers today. Right? So many numbers. Um, $6 billion for the X-Men franchise. I love how suddenly, too, they went from PG-13 movies through all the X-Men, X2, The Last Stand, uh, X2, X-Men United. There's so many titles here, I can't keep up. X-Men origin stories. I mean, Really, most of these are very interesting movies. They've changed so much in tone and direction. I like how there's no single director that's directed all of them, obviously. Uh, Logan, for me, was, I mean, people talk about Deadpool, and I love Deadpool, uh, which is part of this. But that Logan, uh, James Mangold, what he did with that movie, he took, really, to me, this kind of set the stage for Joker to take, a movie, you know, a character from a superhero franchise or a comic book franchise and really turn convention on its head and do something different with it, something super edgy. Yeah. And I think it's something that fans wanted, honestly. Like, I think the fun team up of the X-Men was there. We'd seen it before, but having, you know, Wolverine go on his own, what does it look like? What if it's really gritty? What if we tell this like really dark story I mean, it was a well-filmed movie. It was a well, you know, the screenplay was great. The acting was was great. And so I think it just had this tone that everybody was looking for. They, if someone, you know, they were waiting for someone to take it, make it gritty, make it real, you know, take out a little bit of the camp. I mean, there was still fun. There were still moments of levity, but it really was grounded in a way that I think some of the other X-Men movies haven't been. And it was like a buddy movie too, between... Hugh Jackman and the young girl. Uh, it was almost like a road trip movie, a buddy movie, uh, fish out of water tail. It had so much, I would be so bold as to say that to me, that's an Academy award nominee all day long. I really felt like that was a movie sort of like James Bond, like Skyfall to me was at that level of Academy award worthy consideration. And of course, James Bond, no spoiler here. Uh, we're going to be talking to James Bond, so to speak. And if, in a couple of minutes. But yeah, the X-Men franchise, let's talk about New Mutants for a second. That was one of the movies, first movies that came out uh, during the pandemic, one of the first big movies. And that was uh, in late August. Uh, and that movie, it opened with $7 million, which for the pandemic was, we considered a pretty solid number. But this was one of those movies that was carried over from the Fox deal, of course. And and all these are, are Fox movies, uh, but Disney released it, and it actually made almost fifty million worldwide. But there was a lot of talk around New Mutants, but nonetheless, the X Men franchise 
$6 billion worldwide. Yeah, and I think you make an important point there. We've split the X-Men away from Marvel as a higher kind of brand because they were all released by 20th Century Fox. They're part of their own separate universe. They don't coexist with the MCU. So we really kind of kept them. And with Deadpool, Deadpool sort of has those hints and has those scenes where it does have characters from the X-Men movies. So that's sort of why it's this contained just X-Men, not including it in a broader Marvel brand. That's a good point. I think too, with Fox at the helm, it seemed like all these were a little edgier than your typical, not all, but mostly a little bit different. They just had a different vibe. It felt like they were unfettered by any constraints of, I mean, certainly they, they had the constraints of a PG-13 rating for most of these. Let's talk about Deadpool. Deadpool, I think, you know, 20th Century Fox, they were known for putting out edgy movies like Fight Club. Uh, that was a movie that was I probably would never even be released today. Uh, but, and, and to go out on a limb with Deadpool, that could have gone either way. That could have been disastrous, but what a knockout of a movie, Deadpool. That movie alone earned $783 million. That's an R-rated superhero uh, comedy. If, <laughs> I don't know how to describe It's almost indescribable. Ryan Reynolds I mean, was- that movie doesn't work without him. I don't think you can cast anyone else as Deadpool. And I think that really is where the magic is, is the fact that Ryan Reynolds came on board. He said, this is the movie I want to make. Let's make it. And it took a long time to get made. Um, and then when they finally put the pieces together, it was like, oh, okay, this is what you meant. This is what the fans want. This is what Ryan wants oh, okay, That's now we have the box office for it to back it up. And I think before that, you didn't have R-rated superhero movies, especially not ones that were funny and violent and, you know, true to the comics, true to the character. So I think that really broke it out. And as you said, Logan kind of begot Joker. I mean, Deadpool sort of helped also <laughs> usher along this, this R-rated yeah, that whole R-rated, edgy thing going on. Thank you. Yeah. Oh, my God. The sentence is going somewhere, but you you got it. No, but I, I love that because you're right. I would say there's a couple of, well, there's many characters in film like that who are forever tied to their character. In other words, I can't imagine anyone else playing Iron Man than Robert Downey Jr., right? Nobody else could play Deadpool. Oh, yeah. It's it's the the drama, the comedic timing, the improvisation, like it really, it would be very hard to have someone else replicate that with the same amount of authenticity. And Ryan Reynolds really found his voice with that. It reminds me sort of of Keanu Reeves with John Wick, finding that character uh, later in his career. And just really, that's the character. That's the one, not that Ryan Reynolds can't do anything else. We'll allow him to do other things. I think he had a lot of creative input. I think what was really cool too was that on the Deadpool movies, we could do a whole segment on Deadpool. Could. We'll have to move on. But I just want to say for the record, his Bob Ross impression, those kind of funny PSAs or whatever you want to call them. And remember, they did that with Fight Club. If you look back, there were some really kind of funny things they did with Fight Club with uh, Edward Norton and, and Brad Pitt doing these little PSAs or whatever. They're really cool if you look in the extras on some of the older Fight Club uh, video editions, they have that. But what a great franchise. X-Men, $6 billion, coming in at number six. I hope you enjoyed part one of our episode of Many Screens Big Picture breaking down, well, 
Not the top 10 movie franchises of all time, but numbers 10 through 6. So get ready. In part 2, we're going to be tracking down and breaking down those elusive top 5 movie franchises of all time with Sarah Witten from CNBC. 